Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Now in a few days' time, on April 15th, it will be the 107th anniversary of the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Now, last year, we ran an episode that looked at the best-selling book, Last Dinner on the Titanic, by Dana McCauley and Rick Archibald, which revealed what culinary life was like aboard that faithful ship for first, second, and third-class passengers. Well now, in 2019, it looks like another book is joining the ranks of exploring that famous ship and its lavish dining culture. Author Veronica Hinkey's new book, Last Night on the Titanic, digs even deeper into Edwardian food and drink, as enjoyed, or at least familiar to, Titanic's passengers. Whether it was the forgotten predecessor of the Bloody Mary cocktail, known as the Red Snapper, often served at John Jacob Astor's St. Regis Hotel, or the popcorn served from a horse-drawn wagon owned by another Titanic passenger, Dan Coxon. But today, in honor of that upcoming anniversary, and in honor of the new book looking at this great food culture, we thought we'd play our Titanic episode for you again. Whether it was the first-class cabins, salmon with mousseline sauce, or the basic ship biscuits available in third class. As Dana McCauley said, the Titanic was a floating encapsulation of Edwardian culture, and that, of course, included its cuisine. So without further ado, a glimpse into what dining life was like aboard the RMS Titanic. Eight hundred bundles, fresh asparagus. One thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds, ice cream. Ten thousand pounds, cereal. The RMS Titanic set sail from Southampton, England, on April tenth, nineteen twelve. On board were two thousand two hundred and twenty-four passengers and crew. Now many stories have been told about those traveling on the Titanic. There was Captain Edward Smith, pride of the White Star shipping line, ready to retire after one last voyage in the biggest ship ever constructed. Then, of course, there were the passengers, among the wealthiest and most famous in Edwardian society. In first class, there was John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, Lady Duff Gordon, Margaret, or Molly Brown. But there were also the hundreds of other people in second and third class, traveling across the Atlantic for business, to see family, to make a new start in a new country. Well, 2,224 people have to eat. And with 6,000 pounds of butter, 1,000 pounds of grapes, not to mention 15,000 bottles of beer... The Titanic was outfitted to provide its passengers the best food money could buy, whether you were in first or third class. So many stories have been told about the unsinkable Molly Brown or the famous Titanic band that reputedly played on till the very end, when Titanic, having struck an iceberg late in the evening on April 14th, 
sank beneath the waves, claiming the lives of more than 1,500 of its passengers and crew. Nearly 70% of those who had boarded the ship just a few days earlier. Today, we're not going to tell Molly Brown's story, or Captain Smith's, or even Frederick Fleet's, the man responsible for seeing the iceberg loom out of the cold Atlantic night sky. Instead, we're going to focus on Charles Joran, Titanic's chief baker, and Louis Gotti, the restaurant manager plucked from the height of London's dining scene to manage Titanic's first-class dining rooms. We'll tell the stories of Titanic chefs, Paul Rousseau and Charles Proctor, even Paul Manger, one of the few known employees of Titanic's onboard restaurants to survive the sinking. Even in 2018, more than 100 years after Titanic sank, there remains endless fascination about the ship, the hubris that went into the claims of its unsinkable nature, the microcosm of Edwardian society it carried on board. And in all the luxury and technology Titanic came to represent to the world both in 1912 and today, the food prepared and served on board played no small role. From state-of-the-art kitchens even a modern chef would be happy to cook in, to the final 11-course meal served in the first-class dining rooms a few hours before the Titanic sank. Just like every other detail of the ship, those who built Titanic made sure its food reflected the height of Edwardian luxury and technology. There was the a la carte restaurant, staffed by those trained in Escoffier's finest techniques of French cuisine. There were the cocktails, the latest craze for American bars. There were the 12,000 dinner plates, each featuring a special Titanic design. There were the fresh breads, kneaded, proofed, and baked on board each day. Food was the fuel of Titanic's floating Edwardian society. So everything was, for first, second, and third class, with your ticket, that eating was covered. The, the food was, uh, it was an expensive journey, uh, even for third class passengers. So the food was, uh, was a big selling point of sheer volume of food that was onboarded and how much fresh stuff there was. It was pretty amazing for the time, considering that, you know, refrigeration wasn't what it is today. Okay, well, I'm Dana McCauley. Um, I am a reformed cookbook author. In the past, I uh, created uh, recipes for magazines magazines and cookbooks of my own and uh, contributed to many, many other people's books. So now I am the uh, uh, Associate Director of New Venture Creation at the University of Guelph, working mostly with researchers in the agri-food uh, value chain to find ways to commercialize the, the cool things that get developed in university labs. Today, Dana's work may not sound like it has much to do with Edwardian cruise ship cuisine, but in 1997, she, along with author and historian Rick Archibald, literally wrote the book on Titanic dining, called, appropriately enough, Last Dinner on the Titanic. It's always fun to talk about the Titanic, or as we always say, the unsinkable subject. Uh, I'm Rick Archibald, and I am the author of Last Dinner on the Titanic, uh, as well as a number of other books relating to famous shipwrecks. And I did work on the original book about the discovery of the wreck of the Titanic called uh, 
the discovery of the Titanic, interestingly enough, uh, which was uh, co which I co-authored with uh, Robert Ballard, the oceanographer who actually discovered the wreck. So I've spent a lot of time with the Titanic and with other shipwrecks over the years, uh, but it's the 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 last one on the Titanic is actually of all the books I've worked on probably was the most fun, combining food and history together. What what we often say to describe it describe the book uh, in a, is that in a sense what we've created is a time capsule uh, in which you can sort of enter into this world through the food because what better way to actually experience something past than from the way it tasted and the way people behaved, you know, the sort of the social rituals surrounding food. The book goes into detail on how a passenger, whether in first, second, or third class, would have dined on the Titanic, including, of course, specific recipes that were known to have been served. From basic cabin biscuits, the Edwardian catch-all cure for seasickness, to the opulent final meal served in the first-class dining saloon the night the Titanic sank. But before we dig into the food itself, let's take a look at those who were responsible for keeping Titanic fed. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the, the kitchen staff because they weren't, you know, they were very much background figures. Uh, unlike the famous passengers, you know, who everybody always is you know, interested in hearing about and who who was saved and who wasn't and and so on. But the actual, you know, the people who slaved away, apart from the captain and the and the fir- and the leading officers who play a big part in the drama. Know, making decisions about lifeboats and so on, uh, and in the case of Captain Smith going down with the ship, many of them would have gotten their start in in hotel kitchens. Uh, in fact, when uh, the big ocean liners started to really ramp up their their fancy food, how what their kitchens were like, they actually hired Escoffier to set up their their first-class restaurants, and he would have trained, or people like him would have trained many of the chefs who were working on these ships. We 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 just assume that that the kitchen on the Titanic is you know not unlike the kitchen at the Ritz Hotel in London, which was which was Escoffier's main kitchen at, in his heyday. Auguste Escoffier's influence on both Edwardian cuisine, with its reliance on what is today considered classic French cooking, and the food and service on the Titanic, was everywhere. Not only were the recipes for most of the first-class meals taken directly from his influential cookbook, Les Guides Culinaires, first published in 1903, but his London restaurants like the Ritz set the standard for restaurant service in the first decades of the 20th century on both sides of the Atlantic. If the Titanic was to impress the creme de la creme of Edwardian society, Escoffier was naturally the man to turn to. Despite the elite service and dishes displayed in front of house, life in the kitchens of the Titanic, or any other steamship for that matter, was hardly rosy. I've forgotten the number of people, but we're talking in the, in the hundreds, not in the tens. A lot of of you know people doing very minor labor, 
what's what's most interesting to me about about the all those people who were slaving away in the kitchens, and you can imagine how hot they must have gotten with those coal stoves, is that their life expectancy was very short because of the coal pollution. See that that's the difference when you're using coal as a as a uh, source of energy. It, you're breathing coal dust all day long. So it wasn't a very good profession being a Titanic cook. <laughs> as it turned out, coal dust would prove the least of the kitchen staff's worries on the night of April 14th. Although most of the passengers and even the staff would have been asleep by the time the Titanic struck the iceberg, the bakery staff, those already hard at work preparing the following day's bread and rolls, were among the only ones to notice something was wrong. Around 11.45 p.m., a tray of rolls fell onto the floor in Titanic's baking kitchens. But life went on. Surely anything big enough to sink an unsinkable ship would disturb more than a few bread rolls. It was only after midnight, when the night bakers were busy making cornbread, that they heard the order, All hands on deck. That's when they knew something was truly wrong. Few of the kitchen staff would survive Titanic's sinking, apart from the notable character of Charles Jorgen, Titanic's chief baker. When he heard the call, he had his baking team provision the lifeboats with all the bread they could find. But given the shortage of lifeboats, with only enough space to accommodate barely half of the passengers and crew, he knew one way or another, he was going down with the ship. Which, ironically enough, he did, and yet still managed to survive. Uh, he, he had, he'd, had, he'd been quietly drinking whiskey uh, while the ship was sinking, and then just before it plunged down, he stepped off the stern and paddled away in his life jacket, and but for some reason, because alcohol is not supposed to help you in cold water, he was fine. Uh, he f- eventually got into a lifeboat, and no, n- none the worse for wear. So, wonder where, wonder if he ever went to sea again. Unbelievably enough, he did. Accounts suggest Charles may also have been present on the SS Oregon, a British cargo ship, in 1942 when it was damaged and sunk by a German submarine during World War II. Talk about not getting the hint. The accounts of the few lucky bakers and other members of the kitchen staff are not the only things that give us a clue as to the culinary scene on the Titanic. Today, we can know exactly what people were eating the night Titanic sank, thanks to some fairly unusual mementos people took with them into the lifeboats. Well, of course, Dana, my co-author, Dana McCauley, her primary source for the first-class menu, which is, which is what everybody is interested in, what the rich and famous ate that night, uh, actually, the menu survived. It, somebody had stuck it in their pocket. So some, somebody who got off the ship and got into a lifeboat had a copy of the menu. And from that piece of evidence... Dana was able to reconstruct almost the entire menu uh, as it would have been eaten back in 1912. It's amazing uh, that it it was as easy to do as it was. 
yeah, menus because they were printed and given to people and they were keepsakes. Pretty much every every meal is documented for the other three dining rooms. When you look at the menus, you've got uh, the a la carte dining room called the Ritz, uh, uh, and then um, you've got first class, second class, and third class. And as you look at those menus, you do see a lot of different influences coming in. Third class was about the only one that really didn't reflect the participants. Um, the only dining room that was menu didn't reflect the participants terribly well because they were really a lot of Eastern Europeans, etc. But it was a very um, British blue collar kind of a menu. But all of the other menus really did um, match the people who were there. So the a la carte dining room was pretty much all just like French, French, French. Uh, the first class dining room pretty much the same but with some some bows to some of the really wealthy Americans who were on board like for instance serving cocktails which was not something that um, uh, French chefs like they thought uh, thought and still many of them do think that cocktails before a meal will sell your palate and you know that you should just be, be drinking wine uh, but then in the second class menu it's uh, there's a lot of you know there's a turkey there's there's a quite a few you know sort of American foods that wouldn't uh, have turned up, you know, uh, on a, uh, a menu at the Savoy in London or, you know, or, or in Paris at the time. Looking at the recipes Dana and Rick's book include of second or even third class fare, your choices wouldn't have been too bad. In the second class dining room, you could enjoy, for example, baked haddock, curry chicken and rice, even lamb with mint sauce. Even in the third class, passengers could enjoy roast pork, vegetable soup, even beef ragu. Now, this may not sound like opulent fare, but it was quite a change from previous offerings on earlier ships. In other words, even in third class, they ate well, ate, ate very heartily. And that actually is uh, an innovation because this was very definitely something new in terms of transatlantic uh, passage that they actually fed third class at all. You were expected to bring your own food before that. Just imagine what what it was like down there toward the end of the voyage. (laughs) The joys of beef ragu aside, what most people want to hear about is the final meal in the first class dining room. The famous last dinner of the Titanic. What elegant and Edwardian dishes were offered to the Guggenheims and Astors alike? And it is the menu that people often try to, to execute uh, in, uh, you know, every April to do the, the big um, uh, last dinner kind of a meal. The final first-class dinner of the Titanic would have started in the reception room, a grand space that spanned the width of the ship just situated outside the dining saloon. With lush carpeting, potted palm trees, wicker chairs, and comfy Chesterfields, here is where John Jacob Astor and his very, very young second wife would have chatted politely over a cocktail or two with the other first-class passengers as they waited for dinner. Elsewhere in the room would have waited Isidore Strauss, co-founder of Macy's Department Store, or Charles M. Hayes, president of Canada's Grand Trunk Railroad. And then, of course, there was Margaret, or Molly Brown, the wife of a Denver gold mining tycoon who recently had become the biggest and arguably loudest presence in American upper-class society. 
At 6 p.m. precisely, a bugler would have called the guests to dinner, after which followed a cavalcade of Edwardian cuisine, carefully curated according to Escoffier's exacting standards. Hors d'oeuvre, oysters, consommé Olga, cream of barley, salmon with mousseline sauce and cucumber. You know, what, what freaks people out, of course, is the sheer number of dishes. I think when you add it up, it's, it's like 21 or 23. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is you wouldn't necessarily have had to have taken all of them. They had what's called Russian service uh, on uh, the Titanic. So uh, literally a waiter would have come by and you would have taken what you wanted off of the platter. It's, it's not like a tasting menu the way they're served these days where every you know plate is this, this precious little um, work of art, uh, like a canvas, Uh, but it is the same kind of portion. With over 20 different dishes, dinner for the first-class dining saloon would not have been exactly a fast affair, probably lasting several hours. After all, this was 1912, and there wasn't exactly a hubbub of entertainment options or movies or other sorts of amenities featured on modern cruises to get to after dinner. Dinner was your evening's entertainment. Although many of the menus survived that fateful night, no recipes, if they were even used, have been recovered from the Titanic. So when Dana set about to provide recipes for this epic final first-class meal in the book, how exactly did she know what recipes to use? And so, you know, having the menus and knowing what to include wasn't so difficult, but understanding what those dishes were in the Edwardian period versus what they were in the 1990s um, was the real trick. So I had to go back to a lot of old cookbooks and a lot of, um, you know, uh, writing about food because, you know, what what we make evolves. If you think even just back to, you know, Julia Child, when she would make an omelet, it wasn't filled with all kinds of stuff like what we get when we go to a buffet at a fancy restaurant or a fancy hotel these days. Uh, It was just a really simple, you know, egg dish, maybe a tiny bit of cheese. Which meant, as Dana worked through the 20-odd dishes of that final meal, she had to do a serious bit of digging, and in some cases, creative problem-solving, in order to develop recipes that resembled what was probably served that night. Yeah, there were two two recipes. One that we made work, although now I would do it differently because ingredients that are available are, um, are are closer in. And one where I just had to kind of go with my gut. So the the one where we had to go make a decision, this is how how we're going to do it, was the Waldorf pudding, because they're literally everybody's Waldorf pudding was different. Their their common flavors were apples and walnuts. That was no problem. But um, some of them, it was almost like a, a cake, like a steam pudding, and some were very custardy, and uh, I could never find a definitive. So I ultimately ended up going with something fairly custardy because it seemed to, to suit the rest of the menu as far as textures and things went. The other uh, recipe is the consomme Olga that uh, um, it would have had at the time um, a very thin slice of something called vesica, which was, uh, and I don't believe it's even available now, but it would have been the uh, um, dried marrow from a sturgeon's spine, pretty esoteric. And it would just have given like a silkiness and, you know, probably, um, you know, been, been kind of melty 
in your mouth. That was a, a lot of trial and error and a lot of talking to different people. And so ultimately I decided to use a very thinly sliced piece of scallop to get that texture. But now in recent years, a Sardinian um, food called botarga, which is um, a, a very um, dried, compressed, um, I think it's Oh gosh, what fish is it now? I don't think it's mackerel, but maybe it's mackerel. Anyways, uh, is available. It's because uh, uh, Sardinian food has, you know, become a little more more common as people have gotten more into regionalized Italian cooking, and I think it would have been a bit closer. If you've got the book and you can find Botarga, give it a shot, uh, and you'll probably be a little closer on the consomme olga. Apart from the mysteries of Waldorf pudding or dried sturgeon's spine. There were some recipes that Dana was able to put her own stamp on, as the Titanic's menu gave no indication of what specific dish would have been served. This was the case for the salad course, which in Edwardian dinners often followed the roast meat, halfway through the dinner. Now, the Titanic's menu lists only that asparagus with a cold vinaigrette was served. Now, there must be a thousand and one recipes for vinaigrette which meant Dana had to choose one of these to represent in the book for something approximately close to what would actually have been served. We only had people's diaries on what they had eaten. So the asparagus salad, I um, I did uh, kind of make the executive decision to make a champagne saffron vinaigrette, which pushed the envelope a bit. But I did reap a very big benefit from that because, uh, and it was so funny how many people who were involved in the production of this book uh, um, got in touch with each other afterwards. So if you were a Downton Abbey fan and you, and I loved the way they handled food and the dining on, on that show, beyond the fact that I, I enjoyed the show for other reasons, I, I watched it every week for that. And when Lady Mary had her first wedding and they were making her feast, it was exactly the menu out of the Ritz. And the reason I knew it is exactly that one is because they had the asparagus with champagne, saffron, vinaigrette, because everything else was very of the period and could have, and, but that was the one place I took a little, injected a little bit of myself. And, um, uh, and I was glad I did because then I could recognize it. It was, a, it was remarkably thrilling to be watching Don't Nabby and have, have, uh, Mrs. Passmore, whatever her name was, the cook, uh, saying what she was making and going, Oh my God, oh my God, that's my menu. Dana and Rick's book may have been a resource for Downton Abbey, but it's also lent a culinary hand in almost every other Titanic-related film or show since it was published, including a certain low-budget flick by a guy named James Cameron. James Cameron did have a galley copy of our book uh, on set at, uh, while they were filming uh, the Titanic movie. And our big launch for the book was actually, believe it or not, there was a, you might not remember this, but there was a Broadway play called Titanic at the same time. So we actually did our big launch at that play. And even now, more than 20 years after the book was published, folks still use last dinner on the Titanic, to cook that final first-class meal every April. Rick himself has made the dinner once, although he doesn't recommend it for the faint of heart. At the time the book came out, thousands of people decided they were going to reproduce a Titanic dinner, you know, all 11 courses, if you can imagine. And I and my friends did it. I felt I had to do it for research purposes. But it turned out to be, it's a lot of work. It's a little, I, I described it as being a little bit like a military campaign. We had, I had things taped to my refrigerator, you know, at 11.05, put in the such and such. But the actual meal to eat it is not overwhelming because you eat a lot of courses, relatively small amounts of food over 
uh, many courses, uh, and you eat it at a at a very relaxed pace. Uh, what you do <laughs> what you do feel, however, is slightly inebriated because because there's wine a different wine with every course. Now, if you'd like to undertake the military campaign that was Titanic's final first-class meal this April, you'll have to buy Dana and Rick's book. But we will put up a few choice recipes from the menu on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. We'll include Dana's famous champagne vinaigrette asparagus salad, as well as the recipe for consomme Olga, just in case you can get your hands on some dried sturgeon marrow. Or... Maybe just sea scallops. Last week, Mike and I made a bunch of recipes from the meal. We couldn't attempt the whole menu, unfortunately, but I will say that the fish course, poached salmon and mousseline sauce, is a revelation. Now, if you haven't had mousseline sauce before, let me just say this. Take hollandaise sauce, you know, eggs and butter, and then add whipped cream to it. Because, as Rick says first rule of Edwardian cooking, never use one source of butterfat when two are available. I couldn't have said it better myself. Once again, a huge thank you to Dana McCauley and Rick Archibald for chatting with us last year for this episode. And if you are interested in making any of those fine Edwardian dishes at home, we still have the recipes up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll also post some pics of our attempts at making Mousseline sauce on Twitter and Instagram at feast underscore podcast. But I warn you now, these will drastically pale in comparison to any images from their book. What's the Edwardian equivalent of Nailed It Again? Hmm. Speaking of, make sure you've caught last week's episode with Feral Monaco and Ancient Roman Recipes. We've had such a great response to the episode that we'll be featuring an extended edition of our very humble attempts at Apicius's Hippotrema next week as a companion piece to that episode. But until that time, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.